Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. This is a podcast about some of the striking ideas in the air and up for discussion at the 8th Global Peter Drucker Forum. The forum takes place in Vienna every November. And this year's forum theme is the Entrepreneurial Society. And with me for this podcast is one of the forum's main speakers, Deborah France. She works for a company called W.L. Gore in Delaware in the United States, where she's a leadership development and learning design specialist. Uh, Deborah, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> well, actually, W.L. Gore & Associates is a really different kind of company. So when we're developing our leaders, we can't take things off the shelf. So I'm part researcher and part designer to create the kind of leaders we need uniquely. You've begged an awful lot of questions in that thing. Why is W.L. Gore so different? People will know it, I suppose, worldwide for Gore-Tex, this mystery material that uh, keeps wet out and lets you sweat wet out too. So it's a sort of membrane thing which you apply to all sorts of clothing products. But it's a lot of other things as well, isn't it? Dental floss. Exactly. Gore creates, as you know, the Gore-Tex fabrics. We're on most soldiers and even firefighters around the world, as well as mountaineers and skiers. But the same substance that makes that jacket both breathable and waterproof also goes into medical devices, and we're in the Mars rover, and we're in extreme environments. So very, very innovative company. Spun out at some stage from DuPont, the great Delaware chemical company, which is, what, 80, 100 years old or something. Exactly. In fact, DuPont has now been, you know, subsumed into Dow. But uh, we were spun off of DuPont because DuPont was not interested in developing this material we've created all our products around, and also because our founder wanted to try a different kind of enterprise. The founder came from DuPont. That is correct, yes, Bill Gore. He was given something that was already in development but wasn't of interest to the the core company. It was too peripheral. Yes, exactly. He was a chemist, and he saw great potential in this material that DuPont did not want to go into. When was this? Uh, 1958. Right, and you managed to keep the patents and keep the brand fresh all those years, because quite often this could be a breakthrough development which is followed by a host of me-toos in the highly competitive textile industry from all over the world. You still have maintained your edge. I think it's primarily because we innovate around that singular material. So we're advancing that farther than anybody can, and then where the true innovation came was how many different ways to use it. But, of course, that's not particularly why I'm hearing from you today. (laughs) I'm hearing from you because of the way Gore manages itself, and managing itself is something you've specialized in. Well, exactly. It's even fun when you use the M word, as we call it. You don't like managing, do you? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yes. We were created as an enterprise. And and we really use that word very specifically to me in a place where smart, well-intended people can come and create great things together. And the whole design of the organization has been not to ruin that. It helped that it was started by a scientist, of course. At the core of it was an idea and a knowledge of things, substances, the way science works. He wanted to perpetuate that into the heart of the organization rather than just it be the R&D part, did he? Oh, absolutely. In fact, when you look back, and and he was quite prolific about writing, so a lot of us have really read all of his papers, but he had two innovations in mind, and one was around the material, and the other was to create a different kind of organization. 
because he didn't like big companies or didn't like companies as they were constituted the 20th century company. Yes, I think that was industrial age companies. They got their value off of um, leveraging people instead of unleashing people. So they regarded their workers in the same way, a similar way to how they regarded how they looked on their machinery. I think so. I really do. In fact, many people call Gore the first Theory Y company. Not to get too esoteric about it, but Theory X companies just believed that you either had to punish people or bribe them to get them to do what you wanted them to do. But Theory Y, and McGregor wrote the book in 1960, so you see how close this was in timing, he believed that smart, well-intended people will do the right thing if you just don't get in their way. So we intentionally created this company to be a real climate and environment for great people to be creative and innovative. It was pretty weird then. It's still pretty strange, isn't it? It is. I think that a lot more companies are going away from managing people to leading people. However, they still have titles and they still have levels and they still have bureaucracy. We have some hierarchy. I've got to be honest with you. All humans have a little touch of hierarchy. I have cousins who are twins and they know who was born first. So I think it's a natural thing to want some hierarchy, but the difference is, do you put power in it or not? So we have people at different levels looking at different things and doing different work, but that does not imply that they have power over others. Right. Let's begin at the beginning, though. I walk in. How do I notice it? How different is W.L. Gore? The first thing you notice is that there are no executive parking spaces, and the offices are not particularly flamboyant for executives. In fact, we don't even use the word executive. We have a leader, an enterprise leadership team. That's four people who work together to run the company. One of them is legally the CEO, because we need one in just about every country we work in, and because she does have even that extra bit of vision. But she really, from the beginning, started running the company as a team. And the other three of that uh, little team? We have Terry Kelly, the CEO, about 12 years now. We have she's, the, she's the woman. Yeah. We'll come to how yes, she got Terry, that job yeah. later on. Yes, yes indeed. Yes. Terry Kelly is yes. a woman, indeed. We have Mary Tilly, who pretty much keeps her eye on the sorts of things that all companies need, HR, finance, legal. She, that's kind of her community she watches out for. We have Jack Kramer, who leads the technologists, and we are a technology company. And then we have someone new, Pat Linder, who is in, and he's really looking at how to even create more robust and innovative business models, which is a key theme of this conference. And everybody else? Everybody else? Oh, we're all associates, very simply. And the command and control structures that most organizations would, well, they draw charts, don't they? I remember working for one, and <laughs> when I asked how do we get a program on the air, I was given a flow chart and told who oh, yes. reported to who, and that wasn't actually the question I asked. No, um, we're resisting organizational charts. We still continue to resist them. In fact, some of us are even learning more and more about networks because what we have is a form of organization called a lattice. From the beginning, it's been called a lattice. And all that means is that it's not up and down. It means that I can reach out to anybody. I've been in Terry Kelly's office where she's responding by email to someone who's working in a production plant in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. And she might say, Deborah, can you help me out with this? Because I don't know what he's asking, but she will be the one replying. 
But there must be some sort of moving principle for all this. If you deliberately downgrade the hierarchy and power and those sort of things, then something to a conventional mind, something has to substitute for that, and it could be product, it could be a commitment to what you're making, or it could be a commitment to research and development and innovation, invention, or it could just become a sort of club where it's nice to show up and work with other people. That's the danger, the last one. It is, and it wouldn't have lasted 58 years if that were the case. But I love your question, because most people talk about Gore's freedoms in order to be innovative, and they don't realize that the other side of the coin is our disciplines. So we are extremely disciplined, but it's by community agreement that we're disciplined, not by someone making you be that way. Community agreement, people talk about that kind of thing a lot in (laughs) civil society, for example, but it needs meetings, it needs coherence, it needs some people's ideas winning and some people's ideas being shoved aside. So how does it actually work in in day-to-day, week-to-week practice? I'd say that there are parts of our business that are more stable and parts of our business that are more agile. And I think that that's the key to innovation. You have to decide where you're going to get more value by having reliable processes and being productive and being profitable and where you then take that profitability and intentionally allow things to be looser. And that's where the innovation rises. So you still have the textile side of the business as a big revenue profit-producing heartland, do you? Oh, we do, indeed. And that enables you to go on adventures in edge areas, does it? Yes, indeed. Well, we would not have our biggest area now in terms of earning that profitability, which is our medical devices. And it could not have happened if the fabrics division had not done that wonderful earning. So there are some people in the company who stick to their knitting, who get on doing the job, what, decade after decade, you presumably have long service employees to a considerable extent at W.L. Gore. We have less than 5% turnover. So we indeed have a lot of those long-term associates who really... have been doing the same thing for a long, long time, and they're still committed to it, are they? Well, they are. I would say that they're not doing exactly the same thing because you have to learn and grow or you can't keep up. So they have grown up with their commitment, but their contribution is similar. It's just evolved, of course. And then you have people on the edge doing exciting things, perhaps, that may work and may fail. Absolutely. We've got our innovators. One of my best buddies is a medical device prototyper, former airplane mechanic. He can make anything out of any idea. And uh, he's just a wizard. And and he's probably the far extreme. But we have both uh, scientists and engineers who are working on new potential products. And what about capital allotment? Somebody has to take the corporate sort of decisions about good idea comes along, your friend the prototyper works it up, the salespeople start feeding back the idea there might be a market out there. This needs a capital decision about new machinery and new new hires, perhaps. How do you work that out in, in this sort of um, low hierarchy structure? Who takes the decision to invest big money? Well, big, 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 big money, of course, would be at a level where someone has the purview to see all the ups and downs, you know, pros and cons. But Chief executive. Yes. Uh, well, I would say more leaders of our businesses, actually. It's not all the way to the very top. She would be trusting even a more local decision than that, as long as they're taking a system view. But the thing is, innovation usually starts small. You're not deciding right now to start a $50 million business. You are starting to see if this product has potential. So that's not such a life-and-death kind of decision. And we would try to keep that kind of decision-making as close to that, where the value is known as possible. 
What's the role and connection of the salespeople to all this? Are they just the same as everybody else at Gore or just the same as everybody else in a more conventional company? From the very beginning of the company, we've had a simple metaphor called the three-legged stool. And what that three legs of that stool are is the three things you need for product development. You need your inventors. And in our case, those are scientists and engineers. That's one leg. They get their reward from working there and doing invention. Yes, indeed. Yes. And then so you have your scientists and engineers are the technical leg. You've got the manufacturing and operations. We have to make it. So somebody has to think it up, somebody has to make it, and somebody has to sell it. So the last leg of this tool is our sales and marketing. And so if you think of those three things, from the very beginning of the idea, we have those groups in conversation, even before it's invented. And so we are actually evaluating the market while we are evaluating the technology. I think that's one of the things that speeds up the innovation. So there's a unity of purpose. You don't just rely on marketing to shift the stuff that manufacturing can make, for example, which quite a lot of companies do. Right, exactly. From the very beginning, if I have an idea for an invention and even though I'm in HR, I could, I would immediately find someone from manufacturing to talk to, someone from sales and marketing, and someone from technology. And together, we would look at, can we make it? Can we sell it? And we wouldn't go further without that. Now, that's the kind of activity that in some great big companies would be called a skunk works, isn't it? Somebody going off mm-hmm. at a tangent and mm-hmm. doing things on company time, slightly, in quotation marks, illegally. It's normal for you, is it? That sort of behavior. It is. Now, each one of us, though, is an owner. We are one of the first companies to have employee stock ownership, so I'm not going to waste time doing it. Or I might do it on my own time till it's an idea worth pursuing because I care enough to do that. Corporate ownership. Worker ownership is kind of implicit in this company. Was it implicit from the very beginning? Yes, my understanding is pretty close to the beginning. In other words, like within two years, they found a way. I mean, it took a few years before it made any money, (laughs) so it wasn't an issue. But as soon as it did, there was sharing. So this was a different company right from the beginning and the way it thought about what it was doing and the organizations and the rewards of it, too. You get a um, a dividend, do you? Um, Yes, when, when we make one. (laughs) <laughs> and every, but so, so, so it's so much easier to get people together to maybe work a little harder when a new product is coming online because they know it will benefit them. Absolutely true. There is an ownership feel of that whole company. But that's not the only slightly strange thing about Gore. There's also the way that leaders are found and appointed. And that's extraordinary too in a company that's more than 50 years old. Well, exactly, and especially because we have 10,000 people now, and we're not a small startup anymore. How does it work? I recently went through this experience where, because of our growth, it was clear we needed a leader to help organize a whole group of teams. So this was a new leadership role. Who decides that? That when was needed? Yeah. I think growing pains. In other words, uh, who do I go to to get ideas on this or some uh, It emerges in, it. in an organic way from the hive, does it? Exactly. Well said. Yes, you can feel it. We're talking about it. And by the time you've mumbled it a few times, it's time to bring it up and make it real. One of the things that I think that uh, other companies could learn from us is these community families, these professional families. All the engineers and scientists have a community where they assist with the hiring, they assist with developing each other and deploying each other. So in that community, there's a a real clear awareness that there's a need for another leader. 
that we got away from the need for a new leadership role in a particular part of the organization which you were describing. Yes. So if we, in this case, we knew we needed another leader um, to help organize this team. The teams wanted it. So a committee, it's always a committee, it's not a, just a single person, a committee got together to examine who might we have on the inside who had the talent and the followership to do this role. Followership. Concept, please. Followership means that there's evidence that people will follow them and do follow them. So leaders are sort of developing themselves before they're leaders, are they? Indeed, yes. You would develop yourself. If I were to grow my followership because I, whether I wanted to be a leader or not or just I wanted more influence in our system, I would be that good listener. I would be looking out for others. I would be making sure my decisions always lead to good things for the company. Is followership what they call office politics in other companies? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. No, no, no. It can't be smarmy or self-directed. <laughs> it needs to be directed. It's a, real. It's real, and it's to the good of of the enterprise and the good of people I work with. Okay, so you have a committee meeting. They're looking for followership. You're looking for people. You may not have an internal candidate, but if you do, that's considered by who in the organization? What level? What sort of hierarchy there? Okay, so in this case, they went to this committee, went to the people who would be led. I know that sounds quite simple, but all of us who were on those teams who needed the new leader were asked, who would you follow? You're not telling me you had a vote, are you? (laughs) It's better than a vote. It's much more influential. We had a chance to influence. We were invited to influence. And we put our names forward. They figured we knew more than they did about this. And they were right. And how does the actual choice then materialize or happen? That committee looked at anything that was written into them. They had their own criteria for the raw skills that were needed. I mean, this is all in the practical world here. But some names came up, and you'd be surprised. Here we were in the HR part of the business, and the name that kept coming up was someone who was in the business. And so they actually moved a a leader over from a sales role in one of our divisions because what we realized we needed next to be more effective was a champion and a champion who would make sure that we made the right decisions to really meet business needs. And we all had the technical expertise. What we needed was someone to help us align better and focus our efforts better on the business, and we chose a leader who could help us do that. All sounds a little bit too good to be true, this this sort of emergent leadership that you practice. Just because other people don't do it doesn't mean it's not good. <laughs> I mean, it's one of our edges, I think. If you really think, by the time people are adults and they care about their careers, they don't need someone to micromanage them. They need someone to support them, clear the barriers. We have a whole different set of things we'd expect leaders to do at our company. And when it comes to expansion, let's say expansion in another location, because you're not just in Delaware, are you? You don't work in Delaware, do you? When you come to that sort of decision, it's quite difficult for this sort of swarming mentality to make that, isn't it? I know that bees can do it. They just go off and swarm and take a queen with them and that kind of thing. But uh, you don't have that sort of uh, uh, inbred structure yourself. So how do you do that? Well, the company, of course, now has offices everywhere like anybody does. I understand it's been particularly challenging in some of our Asia-Pacific offices. This style of leadership. This style of leadership. I think that Korea has been one of the biggest challenges because the, the actual language doesn't 
have any words for this kind of role. You also have Confucian-influenced thought there, where the great leader is revered, of course. Yes, and we can't allow that. That would not work for our model. But you don't even know how to say good morning to the leader in the office without a hierarchical title. So it was quite confusing and had to be you know, massaged. I think one of my most fun stories about this was a young man in Korea who said, I cannot work for your company because I cannot get married. And we're taught to always listen first. So you say, oh, please tell me more. (laughs) To which he said, what do I tell my father-in-law is my title? He did join us and we let him have his own business card. (laughs) I mean, what happens outside the company, you know, there are times when I will take on a title, but I I don't use my title inside. You've told us how a new job may emerge, and then the candidates, and then the appointment. You also do this right at the top, right at the top of a a flat organization, so I don't know whether it's right to call it, but your chief executive was selected in a similar way. That's 10,000 people. What, getting involved in the selection process? Probably not the 10,000. It came just before I got there. I'm there 11 and a half years, and she was uh, she became president at 12 years ago. So, But my understanding was that there was a broad reaching out from the board in this case. Of course, we're family-owned. We didn't say that earlier. We're still family and associate-owned. Oh, right. So That's there are two right. lots of owners, yes? Exactly. Or maybe they're the same thing. Yes. Well, actually, many of them are associates. Uh, but, of course, they would want to ensure this is the, the second CEO since family members were the CEOs. Okay, we had the one financially-oriented one, classic. And then this person, uh, Terry Kelly, grew up in the business. She's culturally true and true and had a, a great vision that the board was looking at. But they went to hundreds of people in the company and said, who would you follow? And that's how you do a followership check. You do things differently. Well, we do. And I think that it's a profound belief in teams. It's actually one of our stated belief, the power of small teams. It was funny because our founder noticed this. He noticed that small task teams would get a lot done, even when he was in very hierarchical companies. He also noticed that the the stronger, the more formal organization, the more vivid the informal organization would rise up in response to it. He saw that cauldron of creativity and activity. He said, why don't we just start with the informal one? And that's why we are so relatively informal. So self-organizing teams, self-organizing units, self-organizing companies are possible. Indeed. Just define what you must achieve and then where you're allowed to be loose and how you achieve it. Many thanks to Deborah France from W.L. Gore, an extraordinary company, as we've heard. She's been speaking at the Global Drucker Forum in Vienna. I'm Peter Day, and this is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.